Um, I want to share with you tonight, go, go to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Um, it's an interesting starting spot, I know. Um, I will not be there long. In fact, if you have a ribbon and you want to get a head start, we're going from Ecclesiastes to Luke. So just put it somewhere in the Gospel of Luke and we'll be at a couple of passages there in just a moment. The reason that I'm doing this tonight is, first of all, let me say this. I, I, I have been really trying to pay attention this year, more than any other year of my life, to the lectionary readings of the church globally. What is the church at large reading as their sort of gospel reading for the, in the gospel lectionary each week? I wasn't raised in high church tradition. And what I mean by that, um, that high church, low church is, it's probably a pejorative or, an, or maybe an insult. Um, I don't know. It's just the way that we categorize church. Um, I was raised in, in non-denominational churches, mostly Pentecostal, charismatic style churches. Some of you were raised in high church atmosphere. Um, we didn't have liturgical readings. We, we didn't read the lectionary in my churches. You preached whatever was on your heart. You know, preacher got up and said, Lord, let me to preach this this week. And you just read, you know, you might read 50 scriptures or five. Um, and uh, so I, didn't, I wasn't raised in that environment, but I've tried to really discover it as I've gotten older because I realized that there's a root system that sort of grabs the global church and brings us together so that you could walk into any church on a Sunday and know that if they're preaching what's in the lectionary, you can at least tell probably what the gospel story is going to be. Well, we're meeting here on a Friday, which means there's no lectionary reading for the global church of Friday, but um, I want to take the one from last Sunday, all right? The one that I didn't get to preach last Sunday. And I've had this group on my heart as I read through these lectionary readings and I think, where we might land. And this particular passage from the ministry of Jesus really stood out to me in this, in this week's reading, and it's where we're heading. On the way there, I want to read a couple of verses that I think set it up, all right? And the first one is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 15. Listen to this little Old Testament principle. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 1.15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. This is written by Solomon, whom the Bible calls the wisest man that ever lived. And this is an example of Solomon's quote-unquote wisdom. And I don't say quote-unquote because he's not wise, but this is a wisdom that is practical but not a wisdom that is prophetic. Practically, what is crooked cannot be made straight. But is that a prophetic statement? Is that a spiritual statement that what is crooked cannot be made straight? So keep that in mind. That's the Hebrew mentality. What is crooked cannot be made straight. Go to the book of Luke chapter 3, and I want to introduce the, the moment, and we're still not to that lectionary reading, but we're on our way. Luke chapter 3, verse 5, whenever John the Baptist is being proclaimed, we have heard about the one crying out in the wilderness, and in verse 5, he says, Every valley shall be filled, 
Every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. And so in this prophetic moment about the coming Jesus, he dips back into the Old Testament to quote a passage in which someday the crooked actually will be made straight. And he's saying this to a Hebrew people who have Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, giving them the principle of the crooked can never be made straight. This had to be a bit, this is a little confusing if you're a Jew standing there that day listening to John preach, because you know that in practical terms, the crooked cannot be made straight. What does that really mean? It means you are what you are, right? If you're broken, you're broken. Quite frankly, what mistakes you've made, you've made. You cannot, why cry over spilled milk? You can't get the milk back into the container, right? You are what you are. Life is what life is. If you're broken, you're broken. If you're down, you're down. If you, if you messed up, you messed up. The best you can do is try not to mess up twice. <laughs> if, you're, if you're broken, try not to be completely shattered. Um, but nothing can be fixed. And then here comes John going, nah, there's a better day. There's something brighter. There's something better. I'm here to tell you that there's a time coming when the crooked shall indeed be made straight. And this is a challenge to your faith because you know you live in a world that's crooked and crooked doesn't straighten itself out and problems don't just get solved and broken stuff doesn't get put back together. And yet here comes the prophecy. This is no longer practical. Now it's prophetic. Practically, the crooked cannot be made straight. Prophetically, the crooked shall be made straight. And it challenges your faith. Can you believe that? That's the whole introduction of the gospel. Can you believe that he can... And I know I'm really simplifying the gospel, but hey, maybe the gospel should be simple. It certainly shouldn't be complex. So if it can get any simpler than this, I don't know it. Can you believe this? The gospel says all of your crooked can be made straight. Can you believe that? That's really the challenge of the gospels to say what's crooked about you. It can be made straight. What's crooked about the way you think it can be made straight. And I know when we think crooked we can be all over the map so let's try to be on the same page if we can that which is messed up let's just use a really common and easy word that which is messed up maybe it's messed up because someone messed you up maybe you're messed up because you messed yourself up maybe you just messed up maybe you were born messed up maybe you messed up in an attempt to do things right and then maybe you messed it up worse trying to fix what you messed up <laughs> i'm just giving some good examples of all the ways we've all messed up and you can call it sin, you can call it failure, you can call it abuse, you can call it abandonment, you can call it molestation, you can call it punishment. You're probably not wrong about any of it because all of it will mess you up. And you can't fix it. And you can talk about it, you can get therapy on it, and those are great places to start. But you don't just act like it never happened. And then here comes a prophecy that there's one coming who's going to take all your mess ups and he's going to be able to make them straight. It's the hardest thing in the world to believe. It's really, easy to, it's really easy to amen when you're in church. Like, oh, that's the gospel. Yeah, that's what God will do. But then when you're living it out day to day, how much of it do you really believe? How much of you do you really believe that he can make straight, that he can take and absolutely fix whatever about you was absolutely messed up? So the great challenge, the great call is do you believe the crooked can be made straight? And that leads us to Luke 13. That leads us to the gospel reading for this past Lord's Day. And it is in Luke chapter 13, verse 10. And when you, you now have had a couple of 
introductory passages. You've had an Old Testament passage that was a practical statement. You've had a New Testament prophetic passage dealing with the same statement. Let's take those two and let's just let them be the, the little music in the background, shall we say, as we read this story. All right. From Luke chapter 13, verse 10, and I'm going to read it straight through. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days in which one ought to, work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered and said, You hypocrites. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And when he had said this, all his opponents were put to shame. The entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. I don't think took you turning the background music up very loud to catch that the crooked in this story has been made straight. A physical illustration of exactly what Ecclesiastes said could not be done, what John said will be done when Jesus gets here, and then into the mess of can't be done, shouldn't be done, which is what's declared vocally. Can't heal her on the Sabbath day. This can't be done. Into the midst of the cacophony of voices comes Jesus, who does exactly what was prophesied he could do, what he would do. Even though others thought he shouldn't do it, Jesus takes the crooked and he makes it straight. I want you to keep that in mind as we sort of add another layer to this encounter that Jesus has. And this is this idea that Jesus, and I think it's quite safe to say it this way, it's safe to say that Jesus was constantly and consistently violating the customs of his own religion in his own day. He wasn't doing it because he was rebellious. He wasn't doing it because he was hateful. He wasn't doing it because he was a smarty pants. They were all stupid and he had it all figured out. Jesus doesn't function from the same sort of spots that we do of the need to be right or the need to be recognized. Remember, Jesus is functioning as the agent of his father's love. Here to show you what dad's love looks like. Here to show you what dad's love feels like. What dad's love would do to your crooked, to your mess-ups. What would my father do in the midst of your mess-ups? And so when Jesus goes against or violates those customal norms of his day, he doesn't do it to draw attention to himself. He does it to draw attention to the liberty and the freedom of his father's children. He is insistent on making sure that people feel valued, that people feel loved, that people feel forgiven, that people feel accepted. And he will not let customs or rules or religion or regulation stand in the way of making God's people feel valuable. And if religion and rules and customs get in the way, Jesus has no problem side-skirting religions and customs, even if it offends everybody. And it most often offends everybody. It certainly offends those who work so hard to keep those rules 
and to keep those customs. Let me just give you some for instance, because you just saw one, and you, whether you know it or not, you saw one, I'll lead you up to that one. But there's others. Think about the fact that Jesus speaks consistently in the Gospels to women in public. And in the first century, a Jewish man spoke to no woman that was not his wife in public. It was considered beneath him, and it was considered vulgar. And Jesus frequently, it's actually quite amazing. This is a little challenge I want to give you to pull your Bible out sometime, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just circle, get, grab you a notebook and a pen, and write down all of the encounters that Jesus has with women in the Gospels. It's stunning. Now, it doesn't feel stunning to us because we are a mixed-gender society. I mean, we, we, we're beyond that. We don't think that your gender role determines how smart you are or how much money you should make or where you get to live or what you get to do or you don't get to have that job or you don't get to... We don't... If you still feel that way, there's probably some things that the Holy Spirit is wanting to introduce you to, like knocking on your heart's door going, hey, in Christ there is neither bond nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. <laughs> uh, he has a, a couple of things he'd like to say. But if you go circle all the moments where Jesus deals with them, it's, it's amazing. In every gospel, he's talking to women, he's consoling women, he's being worshipped by women, he's eating in the home uh, of, of women, he's... he's all of these amazing encounters. What, what does it really mean other than that Jesus, in his moment, tries to value a member of society that had no value? He seems pretty intent on that. It's why he spends time with publicans. It's why he spends time with prostitutes and sinners. Because in his religious environment, they were subhuman. And they were only, not only were they subhuman, but they might not even be they might not even qualify, at least this was the Jewish idea of a publican, they might not even qualify for the salvation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet here's Jesus having lunch with them. And so breaking those cultural norms so that people realize they're valued. Here's where I think we mess this up. We think that the whole role of Christianity is to make people right that used to be wrong. And that is not our job to make people right. It's to make people valued. It, Jesus doesn't walk in and try to figure out who's right. Who in this house has sinned? Who in this house has not sinned? I'm here to make sure you know you're right and you're right and you've got to get right and you're wrong and you need to get it right. And We don't see that out of Jesus. It's loving and accepting people so that people realize that they're valued, not so that people get it right. Now, I don't have any doubt that things change when you meet Jesus. Whatever needs to change, changes. And, and we all are in that boat. And so what needs to be made right is only made right in Christ. But it's not the starting block for Jesus. It's to introduce himself and go, Hi, I'm Jesus. This is a bunch of stuff not right with you. Let's fix this. No, it's I receive you just as you are. Let me introduce who I am to you. You introduce who you are to me. And Jesus is frequently doing this. And so speaks to women the publican, the sinners, the prostitute. A woman was not to lay her hands on a man in Judaism that she was not married to. She was not to make physical contact with a man that was not her husband. This is why they are so offended when the woman cries on Jesus' feet and dries his feet with her hair. 
It's why the disciples are shocked and offended and a little turned off in John 4 when they show up from the market and Jesus is in open public sitting at the edge of the well with the Samaritan woman receiving a cup of cold water from her because Jewish men received no gifts or favors from a woman, much less a Samaritan. This is a race issue, not just a religious issue. And here's Jesus taking a cup of cold water from the Samaritan woman. So you can't get around it. All four Gospels, Jesus is breaking custom norms, religious norms. And he's not doing it because he's rebellious. And he's not doing it because he's thumbing his nose at the Pharisees. He's doing it because he sees people who have grave clothes of bondages on them, who do not feel valued, who do not feel accepted, who do not feel loved. And Jesus refuses to live in a world where he can encounter someone And all he had to do was value them and love them and could elevate them to the place where they belong in God. But he won't do it because of what religion will think of him. That's not our Jesus. And so the remarkable thing about Jesus, and I hope you can see where this is going, if the crooked is going to be made straight, you're going to have to fall in love with the crooked. Can you catch this first from Jesus? If the crooked is going to be made straight, you're going to have to embrace the crooked because you can't get the crooked made straight by yelling at them and screaming at them and elevating them or, or, or putting up something for them to jump up to. You know, one of the most responses we've received in sermons in the last several months, last month from Chapin, the ladder you climb, Went out Sunday online. All week long, we heard from people all over the world that that message was totally transformative. And what happened right here in this room on a Friday night last month, we just aired it because we had a lot of backlogs. We just aired it last week. You know why it was so trans? I got so much response from people all over the world was, I've spent my life, Paul, climbing that ladder, climbing that ladder, climbing that ladder, trying to get to God. The idea that God never was inviting me to climb up but was always preparing me to climb down so he could dwell with me. He goes, I, I got word from you. was like, this is mind blowing. This is, this is the most amazing reflection of Jesus I've ever seen in my life in a word. And you know why that is? Because we're all so preconditioned to climb that ladder of performance. We're all so preconditioned that we're not good enough. We're not worthy. We're not smart enough. We don't read enough, fast enough, give enough, do enough. And God is somehow, some way, always asking for more. And here comes Jesus breaking every custom, breaking every cultural norm, moving outside of the realm of all the things he was supposed to do so that he could be with people he's not supposed to be with. And why? Because he had to embrace what the world sees as crooked. Because you're never going to see anything made straight any other way. Jesus came down that ladder and he just walked into people's lives. It's fascinating. But Jesus saw that it was more than people. This is what has been powerful to me this week. Jesus saw that the crooked was more than the moral choices we've made. It was more than... You should have turned left, but you turned right, or vice versa. It was more than you messed up, and now you got to pay the price. Some of that is the crooked. But the crooked is the general path of this system that we live under. It's crooked. We live in a crooked world. Its back is broken. 
It's a system of hatred and domination and oppression. It's a system designed that only the strong survive. It's the top of the hierarchy. You're here to get crushed. We almost know it inherently. It's just a part of what that system is. I believe that we've made the work of Jesus almost too individualistic. Jesus did not come to simply make your crooked straight. He come to make the whole crooked thing straight. He come to face every system of domination and oppression and power and hatred and set it straight. And set it straight through the miracle working power, not of his violent sword, but through the miracle working power of his death on the cross and his resurrection as the new man on the earth. In reality, he came to set the crooked straight by pouring the love of his father, which the, the systems of domination cannot stand the response of love. It's impossible for them to embrace that response of love. It's that response of love that Jesus is going for. And that's why I like to say Jesus did not face evil and then roll over and tell you what you're supposed to do is when bad things happen, just roll over and take it. That's not the response of the kingdom. Just roll over and take it. Because if you just roll over and take it, what happens to you? You just get crushed. Because if you're just going to roll over, they're just going to just keep on rolling and just crush you and not think a thing of it. Jesus does not say, don't do anything. That's not the response of Jesus. In fact, Jesus is doing a lot. Every time Jesus walks into the room and sees crooked, he doesn't go hide in the corner and go, boy, it's too bad that these people are crushed. He goes straight to the crooked. He goes straight into the system and he works on it. And he offers what he has. He, he offers, and I think that's why Peter knew to say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto thee in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I learned this from my master, he's saying. I don't always have what you're asking for, but I might have what you need. And so you want gold and silver in your little cup, but I have something better than gold and silver. I'm not going to just roll over because I don't have gold and silver. I'm going to give what I have, believing that what I have makes all the difference in the world. So he didn't just roll over in the face of evil. He actually introduced a new way to respond to it. I, I want to work through this text. I know I did something a little unusual, and that is I read a big block of text and didn't comment. That's being, I don't like that. I like to talk Scripture as we work through Scripture. So what I want to do is just kind of work back through the story a little bit. I wanted to read the whole thing because we kind of had that music playing in the background of those other texts. I think that worked because then you saw the crooked being made straight right in front of your eyes in Luke, in, in Luke 13. But if you go back and look at this text just a little bit, what we find first of all is that Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath in verse 10. That's a setup, by the way, so that you realize that everything that's about to happen is happening on the day that Jewish doctrine told them they were supposed to rest. They were not supposed to work. And it doesn't stop Jesus at all. <laughs> it doesn't slow him down one bit. He sees that someone is in need. Here's another example of Jesus sidestepping the custom of his day and doing what needs to be done because he's not going to let a day on the calendar keep him from knocking down this system of oppression that this woman is walking in. And so Jesus, and by the way, what Jesus does with Sabbath, I'm going to get into this in a moment, but I want you to always think about this. Jesus is in the redemptive business. He's in the restorative business. Um, we've, we've been a little bit too quick to think Jesus was a revolutionary. 
that he was always trying to revolt. I don't think that's the word we ought to land on first. I, I, I know there's utility in the word revolutionary. It, it helps. But I think the word we ought to land on most is that Jesus is redeeming stuff. He's not just revolting against the system. He's redeeming it. He's fixing it. So, I, so here, here's, here's a good tip. If Jesus does something on the Sabbath, he's trying to show you what the Sabbath's really all about. He's not trying to be rebellious against Sabbath teaching. He's trying to bring the Sabbath back to its original intention. Because he's not a revolutionary going, oh, we don't need days on the calendar. No, it's this day was given for a reason. Let me show you what the reason was. And so by working on that day, he's, giving the, he's restoring the reason for that day. We'll get into that just a little bit in a moment. I really want to look, introduce you to this woman again. In verse 11, we meet a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over, quite unable to stand up straight. Here's what you learn in verse 16, if you'll sneak down. Well, we already read all of this, but we're putting these two together. In verse 16, you learn a couple of things. She's a daughter of Abraham. That's a phrase you probably ought to underline. We're going to get to that in a moment. But here's the other one whom Satan has bound for 18 long years. And what has happened is we read stories like this and we just automatically believe that this woman is demon-possessed because Jesus says Satan has her bound. And so when we think demon-possessed, we start thinking invisible spirits that are living inside of a physical body and that what Jesus does is just comes along, casts the, the demons out, and then the woman is fine. And when we do stuff like that, we really miss the heart of the matter. Because when we do stuff like that, it takes the personality out of it. It doesn't really matter who she is or what happened to her. Jesus just comes in with his big uh, sledgehammer and knocks a bunch of demons out, and they run. The woman's fine. She's just like she always was before. And that doesn't deal with the condition of the woman. That doesn't take into account who she is. It doesn't take into account her personality. And so one of the first things I want you to realize is she is definitely crippled by a spirit. The text is not lying to us. It's not ambiguous. She's crippled by a spirit, but it's Satan who is bound her. And the fact that Satan gets thrown into the story is very interesting. Because in Christian terminology, we always look at Satan as this entity, this angel that runs around on the planet and doing the work. And he's one individual devil and all the other demons are beneath him. And we've sort of created these hierarchical systems in the realm of the spirit. But I want you to realize that in Hebrew literature, the word Satan is from the Hebrew word ha-satan. Ha-satan meaning the Satan. Satan is the Hebrew word for accuser. So whenever the Hebrews wrote the word Satan into their literature, they did not think of a being that was running around with a little horn, a horn tail and a couple horns out of his head, and he's red, and he's got a little trident, in his, and he's stabbing people and throwing them into hell, and he's got a little cackle and fangs. None of that stuff. That's our invention. Hasatan was anything that was an adversary. If it stood in your way, Hasatan. How do I know? Well, because the first time it appears in the Bible, the very first time it appears in the Bible is not the Garden of Eden. Hasatan. The very first time the Hebrew word Hasatan appears in the Bible, Naaman is on his way to try and curse God's people. Remember? And he's riding a donkey, and the donkey goes crazy and rears up on his back legs and won't move forward. And Naaman hops off of the donkey and whips it and says, what are you doing? The donkey talks. That's that famous jackass speaks moment in the Old Testament. Remember that? And the Bible says, and an angel of the Lord stood in the way of the donkey. The donkey could see the angel, but Naaman couldn't. The Hebrew word used right there. And the hasatan stood in the way of the donkey. 
And how's it come out in the English? The angel of the Lord stood in the way of the donkey of the way of the donkey and told him you're not supposed to go forward. Because to the Hebrew mind, the Hasatan was not necessarily the evil one. It was not necessarily this thing running around with a trident and a forked tail. It was anything that stood in your way. So if it stood in your way, Hasatan, the adversary. You want to know where else it comes up? This is because Jesus is a Jew with Jewish mindsets and Jewish ideology. He turns on one of his own disciples one day when Peter goes... They're not going to kill you. If they try to kill you, they're going to kill me. I'm not going to let you go to that cross and die in Jerusalem. And Jesus goes, Satan, I rebuke you. Now, are we to assume that Satan was trying to keep Jesus off the cross? Are we to assume that Satan had possessed Peter and that Jesus needed to perform an exorcist on his own disciple? Text doesn't say that. So why does Jesus call him Satan? Because to a Hebrew, what he was saying is right now you're trying to stand in my way, Peter. If you stand in my way, you become my enemy. You become my adversary. That's the Hasatan. That's the Satan. So in Luke chapter 13, we've got a woman who's been crippled over for 18 years of a spirit, which is our first indication that there's a problem up here with this woman. That's the old narrative way of saying this situation runs deep. It's saying she wasn't born with a crooked spine. What's happened is somewhere along the way there's been a mess up. A mess up that's here, that that maybe is down here, but is manifesting itself out here. And it's so bad that when Jesus goes to work on her, he doesn't have to straighten her spine. He has to straighten out her mess up. And so he goes to work on the spirit That is working on her. Whatever has happened. This is that crooked system that has crushed her down, that has destroyed her. I would not dare try to guess what happened to this woman any more than I would try to guess what's happened to you or what you did that was a mess up or a mistake. But I know there's been a moment in your life where you were in God's presence, hunched over with your own mistakes, hunched over with your mess up, Hunched over with your oppressions and your problems and your faults. You didn't need an exorcism of sorts. But you did need that addressed in you. Whatever that was needed looked at. This is why Jesus says she's been oppressed of Satan. She's had an adversary against her. This whole thing has been against her. This system has been against her. Been fighting against her. So I don't want you to think demon in the way we think demon. I want you to think accusation. I want you to think system. I want you to think domination. Whatever it has been has been against her. And in that scenario, you've been attacked too. When you're hunched over in this manner, you can only see the ground. This woman can't lift herself up to see around her. And the text is pretty specific on what she looks like and the fact that she can only see the ground. I think the narrative's trying to show you that her, her vision is limited because of the oppression that is on her. She really cannot see forward. She can only see the earth. She can only see what's right in front of her. Really, she can only see her own crookedness, her own brokenness. And we live in a world where people are dep- they're down, they're discouraged, they're depressed, they're crushed, they're dominated. They're hated. 
Their hopes, their dreams, their visions been shattered. The only thing they can see is their own world and it's their own filth, their own hopelessness, their own fault, their own darkness. What does she need? Woman, I want you to go back with me to, to, to verse 12. I want you to watch this. Jesus saw her. He called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. There's, he speaks. 13, when he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. What does he do? He speaks to her and he touches her. Here's what I felt like the Lord spoke to me in this text is, by speaking to her, he acknowledged her existence. By touching her, he showed that she was valuable enough to touch. And it was in that moment she received her healing. And I think the narrative is not doing this on accident. It's showing you that the spirit that had oppressed her, had ignored, she had been ignored, she had been devalued. And the moment Jesus acknowledged her and made her valuable, the crooked was made straight. I think one of the answers the Holy Spirit is dropping in the church, is if we'll listen, is that we live in a world that has not been acknowledged and that has not been valued. And if we can acknowledge and value people, we might see something happen in their life that brings hope. One of the greatest things that has happened probably in the last 10 years is also simultaneously probably one of the most damaging things that has happened in the world in the last 10 years. Over the last decade has been the explosion of social media and the proliferation of technology that for the first time, and I'm not being melodramatic, we are living in the most unique hour in the history of the world. There is no speed limit on information. There is no speed limit. There is no stopping how quickly information can travel around the world, how quickly you can communicate with people in other languages. Um, there's no limit. We've, we've almost literally rebuilt the Tower of Babel. You know, that, that idea that we can come together and do this amazing thing. Now, why did I say it's one of the greatest hours, but simultaneously? Well, let's start with the darkness. I mean, the darkness is kind of obvious. I think people are stressed, they're anxious, they're depressed, particularly among younger people whose whole lives are becoming wrapped up in what their screen time what kind of image they receive of themselves, what kind of feedback they get on pictures and videos and responses and posts. We didn't have that. None of us grew up in an environment where we were judged for a snapshot in real time at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I, I don't even understand what we're dealing with, but it's powerful. It's way more powerful than we possibly give it credit for. At the same time, because that's out there, the greatest thing in the history of communication has happened, people get a voice that never had a voice. People get to be heard that were always ignored. They were ignored because of the way they looked, they were ignored because of their orientation, they were ignored because of their hair color, they were ignored because of where they grew up, they were ignored because of how much money they didn't make, they were ignored because they couldn't speak well, uh, they were ignored because they weren't smart, they were ignored because they were out of shape, they were a, a thousand reasons. And because of these platforms, people are being acknowledged. They're getting a chance to be seen and they're getting a chance to be heard. And here's an amazing thing that I've noticed our backlash is happening against people being heard that a lot of us don't think ought to be heard. So because of their 
preferences or their orientation or because of the way they look or the way they act. Sometimes we wish we could go back in time to a time when people didn't feel so confident that they could express themselves like that. Or maybe we live in an era where people are a little too free or a little too loose with how they feel. And I don't know, maybe you're right. Maybe people are a little too free or a little too loose. But I do think it's pretty phenomenal that people get to be heard. And when I watch Jesus, I have a hard time thinking that God wishes people would shut up. I have a hard time thinking that the father walks in and goes, gosh, these people are too loud about their desires. These people are in here telling everybody what they think. No, because everywhere we go, we watch Jesus releasing people who were never touched. They couldn't get touched. No one could reach them. They were the, it's kind of the leper in Jesus' story. Because the leper, leprosy was a physical disease. I always thought it was fascinating that leprosy is the disease of the Gospels because it's the most... It's so misunderstood, but it's so, it's so physical. I mean, it literally eats the flesh off your body, destroys your nerve endings. And so in a world of poverty and homelessness, the rats could eat your fingers while you slept and you never woke up because the nerves were dead in that hand and you wake up and half your hand's gone. I don't know, that's, I'm, I'm being over the top, but it's literally true. And when rotting flesh, when flesh starts to rot, the stench starts to grow. So lepers literally went into colonies by themselves. Jesus is amazing. He doesn't just encounter lepers vocally, though he does. He touches them, which is insanity. You don't touch, because guess how you get leprosy? <laughs> literally by touching them, literally making physical contact is the way that it spreads. And in a world where no one touches you if you're a leper. Can you imagine no one touches you? You get no physical contact. Jesus knows they need physical contact. Remember, my question is always this. Couldn't Jesus just heal people by saying the word? And the answer is, of course he could. He does that sometime. Speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus goes, man, that's some faith. Go home. Your servant's healed. Phenomenal. You know what that means? He can speak the word. People can be healed. So why does he bother to touch people? Why does he put his hands on a blind man's eyes? Why does at one point he meets a deaf, a dumb man and he touches the man's tongue? Who touches another man's tongue? Why does he stick his fingers in the ears of a deaf man? Why does he wrap his arms around a leper and pull that stench in close to himself and hug them? Why does he break all of his Jewish protocols in the synagogue in Luke 13, and he doesn't just speak to the woman, which would have been enough, but he puts his hand on her in public. And instantly she's released because the heart of our father is to acknowledge us with his voice and value us with his touch. To bring us back into communion with him in a society that's quit touching us because we're crooked. That's quit listening to us because we're dumb. Let's quit paying attention to us because we don't have the right car or live on the right street or have the right skin tone or have the right voice. And then God grabs us, calls us by name, holds us, acknowledges us, values us. By speaking to her and by touching her, Jesus elevated her elevate someone by lifting them up to make them feel worthy to the place 
that they matter. For one brief shining moment, on a Saturday in the synagogue, this woman was the most important person in the room. This had never happened in her life. She's the reason this text exists. What a Jesus. For one moment. A woman that didn't wake up that morning thinking the day would be about her. It's been about her now for 2,000 years. Every time you read Luke 13, he picks her up. And he lifts her into the center of your room. And he says, nobody may have paid attention to her when she was alive. But you're sure going to pay attention to her on this lectionary reading this Sunday. You're going to watch her because she's you. She's me. She's all of us who've been crooked and broken and knocked over and need lifted up. Not demon-possessed in some Satan movie way like Hollywood imagines that possession is, but opposed by every spiritual force in the universe, opposed and dominated and molested and knocked down and destroyed and ignored until the only thing you can see is the dirt in front of your feet and you wonder if there's ever any hope for you because you're never getting up out of this squalor and there's no tomorrow for people like you. There's no tomorrow from where I come from, from the part of the country I was born in, from the place I live, from the kind of parents I have, from the background I've raised in, from the lack of money I've had since I was a kid. There's no coming back from the disease that I have or the inheritance I don't have or the issue I've got, the mess ups, the mistakes and the problems. Society's against me. People are against me. Religion's against me. God's against me. And then Jesus comes in and just touches and hugs and loves. Why would we get mad in a world where people finally get their voice heard because we don't think their hair's the right color? What's wrong with us? Why are we getting mad in a world where people are getting a little bit of attention that used to never even get to say what they really felt for fear that they might get the fire beat out of them or ignored or killed? I, I, I don't have to approve of what people do, but by God, I could at least listen. I could, I could at least open my ears and go, if Jesus could listen, and he's got it all, and he could lay it down and just listen and maybe even touch the untouchable and hug the unhuggable and love the unlovable. I don't have to, I'm not putting my seal of approval on people's lifestyles and my seal of approval on decisions people make any more than Jesus walks into the room and goes, I agree with everyone's moral choices here. We don't find that in Jesus we just find Jesus loving the room. I don't know what made us the moral police. Why we're so scared if we love people, they'll keep doing foolishness. Who am I to tell people what they do? But I do know that Jesus loves them, that the Father cares for them. That's my gospel. That's the good news. That's an elevation. That might be the news they need to get the adversary off their back, to get this 18 years of oppression, looking at their own feet in the dirt. Verse 16, what a phrase. Ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham? <laughs> Just underline it. Think about it if you don't have a pen. Just don't lose it. And I'll tell you why you don't want to lose it, because you're not going to find it anywhere else. There's not a moment in Hebrew literature before this moment. Are you hearing this? Listen carefully. There's not a moment in Hebrew literature, before this verse, where anybody had ever written down the phrase daughter of Abraham. Never. Jesus made it up. He coined the phrase 
daughter of Abraham. This is maybe the most offensive thing he does in the religious minds of the people in that room. Because sons of Abraham receive an inheritance. Paul runs into this conundrum in Galatians when he goes, there's no male, there's no female, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no bond. There's no... You know why he goes, there's no male, there's no female? Because this isn't about sons. This isn't about the boys get it. He goes, in Christ, there's no difference. You get, you get in. You get, you get in. You don't have to be the firstborn. You don't have to be born wealthy. You don't have to be born right. You don't have to be raised right. You don't have to have, know who your dad is. You don't have to trace it through your great grandpa. He goes, in Christ, we're all Abraham's seed. But Jesus beat Paul to the punch. Don't ever, by the way, think Paul is out in front. It's always Jesus. It's just Paul reimagining Jesus in, in fresh ways, which is what gives us permission to do. That's Paul's great contribution, by the way. Reimagine Jesus in fresh ways. It's what we ought to do every time we preach. Reimagine Jesus in fresh ways that stay true to the Jesus of the Bible. There's the Jesus of the Bible going, daughter of, this daughter of Abraham ought to be lifted up. This made, this gave by voice inheritance rights to a female. Never been done before. Jesus just busts up gender distinctions in one moment in the synagogue in Luke chapter 13. This is a phenomenal moment. One more from the 14th verse. Told you we would get to this. This is where we're going to try to land. The leader of the synagogue is indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath and kept saying to the crowd, there are six days. Kept saying to the crowd, I like that. He kept saying it, which means he's saying it and no one's listening. And so he says it louder. And so he keeps saying it louder. Hey, listen, there are six days where you're out of work. Come in on those days and be cured. Do not come in here on the Sabbath day and be cured. Let me say a couple things. I told you earlier, sometimes we try to position Jesus as a revolutionary. We ought to position Jesus as a redeemer. What he's really doing is restoring value. He's restoring where the things are supposed to be. He's not revolting against the Sabbath. He's bringing the Sabbath back into its intended use. Because the Sabbath was a day of rest. It was a day when you ceased from your effort. It was a day when you were released from the stress of work. You were released from the stress of performance. So when Jesus sees someone bound on the Sabbath, what's the Sabbath for? So he can't walk past someone bound on the Sabbath because he's going to be accused of working because just because it would make religion happy for him to do the right thing, he'd have to walk past someone who missed the heart of the Sabbath. How are they going to rest if they're bound? You could honor the religious days all the time and still be bound. People are honoring religion every Sunday that are still bound. People are honoring religion every day that are still bound because they haven't met the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. The Sabbath walked in on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath won't let you be in chains and bound and in your grave clothes. And so if you're going to meet Jesus, he's going to rip away all of the things that bring you into bondage. Listen, there's a righteous argument to be made against Jesus. This is an important landing spot. There is a righteous argument being made against Jesus in this text. It is right, quote unquote, righteous and godly men who are cutting Jesus down for this action. Let me tell you something. This is just a a blanket thought. Do with this what you want. All right? Don't like it? Just spit it out. All right? Take it or leave it. Be careful. 
when so-called men and women of God, pastors, evangelists, prophets, famous or non-famous, be careful, when they start spotting demonic activity in the world because they don't have a good track record, they thought Jesus had a demon. We are not in the demon spotting business. We're in the gospel business. Take that or leave it. Because we got whole swaths of Christianity that think their job is to expose darkness. I don't trust people who peddle in finding darkness because in the gospels they thought Jesus was demon possessed. So be careful with them. All right? Because when you are a specialist at spotting the darkness, you've, ma- you've major in darkness. And you don't get rid of darkness with darkness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness is the starting spot. And God said to the darkness, let there be light. This whole thing starts in darkness. And we don't beat darkness by spotting it. We drop in the light. The job of gospel is not darkness spotting. It's light exposure. So be careful with, I'll tell you, I've spotting the spirit of this and the spirit of that and the devil of this and the devil of that. go Because the same crew would have told you Jesus had a demon because they did when Jesus was on the earth. I got a sermon coming up in a few weeks called When They Thought Jesus Was Demon Possessed. Watch it. You're going to love it. But it's, or, or you're going to hate it. But either way, either way, it's going to do something to you. But the, but the reality is, is don't let, here's, the, here's your take-home phrase. Don't let religious arguments cloud the truth. Some people just want the status quo in religion. They just always want things the way they, quote, unquote, always watch out for this phrase when people go, I just want things the way they used to be. I'm scared of that phrase. When people go, I want things the way they used to be, that's a Pharisee. Or at least they're in Pharisee school. They may not have graduated yet, but they've been hanging out with Pharisees. Because there's always this desire for it to be the way it used to be, and yet here comes Jesus, who's the eighth day. Jesus is your eighth day. You realize it? Jesus is resurrected. We're we're out of seven-day creation with Jesus. We're done with that. It ain't going to ever be like it used to be. That's Jesus. If Jesus comes in the room, ain't nothing going to be like it used to be. If you want things to be like it used to be, you're going to have to get rid of Jesus. He's an eighth-day guy. He's bringing the sun up. Earth, earth rotating. We're going to leave yesterday behind. We're moving forward. Christ is always in the renewal business. That's why he's not a revolutionary. He's a renewer. He's, he's, bringing, he's bringing the new. He's bringing the new. He's bringing the new. My God will do a new thing. How's he do it? Through Christ. Sabbath day healing. Let's just say this overview. Crippled by spirit. Oppressed by an adversary. Released by acknowledgement and value. His voice and his touch. Healed her on the Sabbath day. Because he became her Sabbath day. Because he became her rest. So I ask you. Was Solomon right? 
Solomon goes, the crooked path cannot be made straight. And then comes Jesus. And he went after the crooked to make it straight. And he's still going after the crooked to make it straight. How? Fix yourself. Clean up your act, you bunch of filthy sinners. No. <laughs> Value and acknowledgement. He puts his hands on the crooked. And only in the master's hands can the crooked path be made straight. Amen. But man, can it be made straight? Father, I, I want to thank you tonight for this word. And I want to thank you for this, the, 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 the beautiful presence of the spirit that's in this room with us. I, I thank you that I have seen expressions of your love and your, your joy and your peace in the eyes of the people in this room tonight. I've seen expressions of Jesus and your miracle working power. And I want to thank you for that and praise you. There's a lot of people that will hear this word, Lord, over the next weeks and months and years. I don't even know how long. I have no concept of how this thing is going to work forever. But I know the word works forever. I know that somebody's going to click on this somewhere who's made a mess up. Pretty convinced they can't fix it. And not my words are going to do it. The style's not going to do it. But they're going to hear about Jesus. If they get just a little bit curious about Jesus... Jesus walks into that room or that car or that set of earbuds in their ear and just goes to work on the mess up. And I believe that like I believe the sun will come up tomorrow. It's how convinced I am that Jesus still makes crooked paths straight. So I pray for that man, that woman, that boy, that girl that hasn't even heard it yet. That's crooked. That even right now, maybe as we're making this, ending their mess up is happening or the mess up of the world is happening on them but i'm praying their crooked is made straight in christ in jesus name amen